Fly Adeline podcast with Joe and Carrie. And today's special guest, Shri Master Gano Grills. Welcome, welcome. All right, we're here right now with uh, Shri Master Gano Grills, spiritual advisor, graffiti writer, and actor. All right. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Well, for me, it's, it's, it's an honor to have you here. This is my first time meeting you. Uh, I grew up on Staten Island, and getting into graffiti in the early 90s, you were definitely one of the names that came up whenever people were talking about, you know, an accomplished, you know, graffiti writer coming from Staten Island. And during my early years of taking the ferry into the city to go to high school, you were definitely someone that I constantly saw. I must have been two steps behind you. I don't know if you were commuting to work or something at the time, but I was, I was always coming across, you know, stickers or tags in the subway stations or at the ferry or something like that. And I think that at that time, being in high school, that was probably the last time that, like, I sort of had this very, very impressionable identity on graffiti. And I think that my, my, I remember thinking, like, oh, it'd be so great to meet Gano and get him in my black book or something like that, you know? And that never really happened for me. And I went on to do graffiti, you know, in my own right and do my own thing. And in some ways I was sort of, I, I, felt, I ended up feeling glad that I never met some of the people I looked up to. But it's, it's a pleasure to come, you know, to this point and meeting you here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The pleasure's mine. And um, as I was thinking before, it's funny, I, I, you and I had Sims in common. You knew Sims, right? Yes. And you look a lot like him. So, you know, <laughs> it's funny, like when I look at your work, I can't help but to think, you know, if Sims was still alive today, he would probably be at this level of his creativity with his gift, you know what I mean? And he, even at that time, was very progressive in terms of with his music and doing art. And he was a few steps ahead of everybody else, you know, so you kind of, you remind me of him a lot, you know, so... I'm glad that you're doing your thing, and you know I always think about him when I see you. And we were both named Joe. Yeah, you know there must be something in the name. And both from that, Staten Island. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, cool. So, so tell me, uh, growing up on Staten Island for you uh, as a kid, how how did that play a role in your development today? You know, did you did you grow up religious? Uh, you know, what what was some of the components uh, that influenced you? You know, um, growing up on Staten Island was everything, you know, and I grew up religious like everybody else. And my mother, you know, made me go to church. She made me go to Sunday school. And I spent the summers sometimes in Chattanooga, Tennessee with my great grandmother. She was very uh, strict about Bible study. So I kind of was a, a savant even back then when I was young about religion. And I formulated questions that couldn't be answered. But my exterior um, impulses that forged, I believe, an earlier part of what I became as a graffiti artist basically was predominantly because of my environment. So growing up in Stapleton, graffiti was all around me and all I saw was the influence of, I would say, the first going into the second wave of graffiti. So a lot of artists from like 1974 all the way up to 1981, 
I was seeing a lot of the um, the earliest stages of what graffiti would eventually become through evolution. And these guys were very creative. So there was a crew called the Bomb Squad, and they all lived on Sand Street. So Basic Five, St. Five, Ren lived down the block. Minnick lived right next door to me. We actually rented our home from his grandfather. So graffiti was like all in my face. And I had no other choice but to eventually become a graffiti artist. So um, that played a big part of my evolution. And Stapleton also, you know, we had a crew called the Vamp Squad, the Paris crew, and these guys were like hardcore pugilists. Like they knew how to fight really well. And everybody in the 70s and the 80s, it was accepted and understood that you just knew how to fight. It was part of your extracurricular. So doing calisthenics and the 52 hand blocks was something that everybody knew how to do. If you didn't know how to do it, you were an alien. So that was also part of my education growing up as a byproduct of Stapleton. And that played a big part in some of the lessons that I learned, you know, later on in life. All right. Uh, let me ask you. So in the 90s, I remember seeing your work always appear in Wu-Tang videos. Um, how did you get connected with those guys? How did that happen? Um, the Wu-Tang Clan are a little bit younger than me. So RZA, RZA and I, we hung out a lot. And we I used to rap back in the days, which is interesting. So I had a group called Feel Nigga Soup. And it was myself, Little Latin Nigga, and... Um, what would he call himself back then? P.I. is his name right now. So we would do, you know, a lot of songs. And around that same time, RZA was Prince Rakim. And me and RZA would ride the bus to um, Staten Island Mall, and we would talk about what we wanted for our rap careers and things like that. We fantasized a lot about that. And I actually came up with an idea called The Five Deadly Venoms. And I said, you know what? Why don't we create a group called The Five Deadly Venoms? And each one of us will take a name that is an homage to some of the, you know, the Kung Fu flicks that we watch every Saturday. So it was me, him, a guy named Lord Kwan, who was deceased, another guy named Casual Lin, and my friend Angel at the time. And we formed this group called the Five Deadly Venoms. And if you ask RZA about this, he might say, oh, snap, I forgot about that. Because that's where I came up with Wu-Tang Clan. This is back in 1989. So we got together as much as we could, but it really wasn't enough for us to lay anything down on tape. RZA was doing things, if you know what I mean, at the time. And he ended up catching um, a couple of cases, and that's where the song Protecting That came from. And we ended up not doing anything at all. So it just kind of became an idea that, you know, wafted around in, in the wind. And later on, he revisited, I believe, that template of the Five Deadly Venoms and created Wu-Tang Clan. And that was a movement of localized people. So Shaheen, a.k.a. the Rucker Child, the Gladiator Posse, and a lot of people from Park Hill, Stapleton, and Brooklyn just kind of forged together. Wu-Tang was really more of a movement of people who were nice on the mic. And RZA was smart enough to take certain people, put them together, and have everybody come to the studio and formulate that group. So I was, at that time, was a Muslim. And I had um, a long white robe and a long goatee. 
And I was walking around from neighborhood to neighborhood, basically tabligging people, talking to people about Islam and religion. And that was my thing. So I probably could have been part of the group, but I wanted nothing to do with it at the time because I kind of traded in my desire to be a rapper for a spiritual journey, which I am still on. So by the time Wu-Tang Clan began to blow up, um, you know, RZA always asked me to, you know, be part of it somehow. So I would just lend my graffiti to it. So if you look at a lot of the early Wu-Tang videos, you'll see that they strategically, like if you look at Cream, you'll see my name and the stickers in the hallway. Or if you look at Can It Be All So Simple, they did it right there on Broad Street where you'll see Gano's name in the background on all of the gates that they rolled down and the cars are parked in a funny way. So that was... Um, my connection to them, you know, we're still connected. We're still tight. And uh, DJ Mathematics, who did the original Wu-Tang logo, uh, asked me to do the cover of this latest Wu-Tang album. So I reached out to two other artists that I know and employed them. And I added my little five cents to the album. And I think everything has kind of come full circle. So we're still really close. And, you know, I'm happy for the legacy that they produced. And I've always been part of it, whether it's in the background or, you know, just by affiliation, part of that whole Wu-Tang movement. Very cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you're at, at the time in the early nineties, you are, uh, living on Staten Island, doing graffiti. You said that you got into, uh, being more serious about the, your Muslim faith. Right. Uh, from there, uh, did you start, when did you develop an interest in acting? That was around the same time, you know, when I was in school, I always was in a school play. So every year, most schools have a school play. So the guys that were chasing girls and being on a football team or the basketball team, that wasn't me. I was the corny guy that was doing, you know, the plays every year. And that also was my extracurricular activity that I pursued. So uh, I was part of the local playhouse when we would do plays all throughout the year. And that's something that also was another passion of mine that I never strayed away from. So it's something that I've always done, even from when I was ten years old. Mm. So, so in, so in that time, did when did you become more serious about it? And I, I see that you've had over the years, uh, you know, uh, guest roles in in many shows that we all know about. Uh, when did you start to become more? serious uh, about that and what did you do to sort of focus in and do it professionally that's a good question i i would say around 1993 was when i made more of an earnest choice to pursue the pursuance of being an, an actor i did a play up in harlem called endangered species back in 1994 and um i don't know if you know Michael Kenneth Williams, he was in The Wire. He played Omar, and he's done a lot of things since. Uh, we were in that play together, and after that play was over, we ended up both getting a part in a movie, and subsequently, we ended up auditioning for uh, Law & Order. I got a role on Law & Order in New York Undercover and certain other things. It was my introduction into TV land right after doing that play. Mike also, Michael Kenneth Williams, continue to, you know, we would bump heads at the auditions together. We would audition for certain things, certain roles he would get, certain roles I would get. 
And um, I decided to take it more seriously during that time. It actually came a point where I decided to put down the microphone as a rapper and pursue being an actor. And one of my friends, Angel, who was part of my group at the time, Phil Nickasoup, he looked at me one day and said, you know, Gano, you're not really a rapper. You're an actor, acting like a rapper. <laughs> so I was mad as hell when he told me that, but something about that just really struck a deep chord. And I said, you know what? I'm 20 something years old. What do I look like being a rapper back then? So I decided that I was going to let that go. And I didn't have a desire to rap anymore. So I continued to continue to build my uh, relationship with doing plays and being an actor. And uh, that's how it happened. Around the same time, there were a lot of rap groups that were doing the thing like the Fugees and Jay-Z. They were all coming up around the same time. So it just, I ended up somehow in their rap videos. And uh, that was an extension of what I had already built as an actor. And a lot of people thought I was an actor because I ended up being in those rap videos. But I explained to them I was acting way before this. And it just was in a different kind of order. I mean, acting acting takes a lot of commitment. It it seems like the 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 type of thing that you really have to invest a lot of internal energy and be able to do something that's convincing. Uh, what would you say you learned about yourself in the in the process of perfecting your craft? Dedication, devotion. How far are you willing to bear your soul? How much are you willing to give of yourself? How much time will you create for what you really love? Those are the things that I learned as a result of sacrificing personal time in juxtaposition to what you're going to create time in order to serve the narrative. So I guess to boil it down, if you're going to be an actor and you get a lead in the play, one of my things as an actor is you have to, the very first thing for me if it's a script that has 150 pages, you have to memorize the entire play. So I would take the script and I would memorize it. It would take however long it took to memorize. It's called getting off a book. And I wanted to be the first one off book. So as a result, you know, if I was on the train or the ferry, I'd be the guy walking back and forth, just reading the stuff. And, you know, I'd, I'd try to memorize it and say it. And people thought I was crazy a lot of times. They're like, what is he doing? And because I'm a method actor, I sometimes would take my identity to the breadth of whatever the character was. So a lot of times I would act things out, you know, on the corner and people would think I was crazy. But that was the sacrifice that I was willing to make for being the best actor in that particular product. So the things that I learned really is dedication, devotion, and sacrifice in particular with being an actor. Since we're on that subject, I got to ask you, because there's a lot of talk you see in the media now and everything about, uh, you know, kind of like these, uh, you know, executives and actors in Hollywood, Hollywood executives and stuff that are involved in a lot of misconduct and stuff like that. And you as somebody who has been in the business, have you seen any kind of like dark behavior? Like, have you been exposed to any of this kind of maybe weird stuff that we hear about going on in Hollywood, maybe not 
just sexual allegation <laughs> type of stuff, but like any kind of craziness that most of us wouldn't know about. Yes, I've seen a lot of it, but I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to throw anyone under the bus. But a lot of the things that you hear about, you know, sexual deviancy and sexual misconduct or sexual con sexual misconduct is very um, it's very apparent in the industry. And unfortunately, you know, when people rise in a position of power and they're able to hire and fire people or change the construct of someone's career simply by greenlighting them, that gives, uh, it gives a lot of power to the individual. And it's not because it's an egoic thing. It's because people literally begin to regale you as someone who has authority over what happens in their life. And it's something that you just become aware of when you're sitting across from someone. So that gives the person who is inequ in, in, inequitous the license to kind of infringe upon that, you know, and people think that they have some kind of sovereignty over touching your body or doing something. And usually people are very tight lipped about it, but yeah, it, it exists. And I've, I've, this is what I will say. One of the main reasons why my career as an actor did not flourish in the way that I wanted it to was because I would not allow that kind of, um, I wouldn't allow that dynamic into my life and I would not be part of some of those antics that most people are being called out for right now. Mm. I'll just say that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so through your experience of, of acting and doing graffiti, I mean, all of that seems, you know, you know, like on the path of, of doing something, but how do you end up in a situation where you're, where you're at now, where you're a Shri master? What exactly is that? And what happened in your life beforehand or what happened leading up to that moment where you said, you know, this is what I'm going to do? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I would say that if I had to back engineer from today to where things began to morph into my life was things began to have, things began to occur around me to get my attention. And there was a teacher that I had, not going to say the name, for those people that know me really well, they'll know who it is. Um, there was a teacher that I worked with for a certain amount of time. I sat at this teacher's feet and I learned everything that I could learn. And the teacher and I parted ways. I was asked to step back and for whatever reason. And when that happened, there was another man who had a podcast and during the podcast, he would randomly pick names of people who called in and he would give them a reading. And I happened to be listening to it. So I emailed my name and I'm sitting there listening to the podcast and I'm falling asleep and then he calls my name. So I wake up. I'm like, uh, yeah, yes, yes, no, that's me. And then he says, uh, were you just released from some kind of, did you just have some kind of separation? I said, yes, I just separated from my teacher. He says, oh. He says, St. Germain is, is right next to me right now. 
And he says that that happened because the spiritual world wants to work with you. And I said, okay. And he says, um, you, you've been preparing your entire life for what's about to come. I said, all right, so what do I do now? So he says, just be patient and if you can live your life every day without the icing on the cake until that next moment comes, you'll be in good company. And he told me some other things and I'm, I, I'm like, okay, thanks a lot. Two days later, and by the way, that man, St. Germain, is known to be someone called an ascended master. And they are very interesting beings that were once human and they reside outside of the spiritual veil because they've completed their education in human form. So they're no longer human. This podcast, what was the name of it again? The guy's name is, I don't know if I should say it. Okay. Well, what kind of reading does he do? What What is his, his beliefs? Right. Well, he actually is a medium and he's, I'll, I'll tell you off the air to, and you okay. can look it up for yourself, but he's a very, very talented medium that is able to, and there are talented mediums all around the world that can basically key into you and give you information that you don't know about yourself that comes from your spirit guides and otherwise. So, um, I took what he said with a grain of salt. And it, it relieved me from some of the angst that I had, you know, by separating from the teacher that I was with at a time, at that time. And miracles started to happen. What, what, what kind of teacher? Uh, like, what were you learning? What, what was this student-teacher relationship? The relationship was very symbiotic. And I was learning uh, how to connect with the gods. I was learning about different kingdoms that I didn't know existed. I learned a lot about the things that I thought were real, they weren't. Um, I learned about different modalities that take you from where you are to another plateau. A lot of things I, I wasn't able to research on you know, YouTube or Wikipedia. This teacher basically took me and brought me to the next level. And it was, uh, it was palpable. You know? So I was endowed, you know, he gave me some of the power that he was given. And the, it's called a paradosis. And when you're given that kind of power, it changes the baseline stratus of what you're able to do. So if you, if you analogize that to a car, if you give a car a higher octane treatment or you put nitrous oxide in that vehicle, it's going to perform a lot differently than it would have if it didn't have the presence of that. So that's basically what that relationship represented in terms of, I felt that was pretty well-read at the time and I was well-studied, so I thought, until I met this one teacher and then they whew, took me you know, into a very, very different arena. And then I was able to take that and expand even further. All right, and the title Shri Master, how did it come about that uh, you've been dubbed this title and what does it mean specifically? Okay, so Shri, S-R-I is, it has different meanings as Sri Lankan community and there are other gurus that have that name, but with me in particular, and that's really all that I could speak on, is that the Sri represents a goddess named Lakshmi in the universe. And she's a, a god of infinite wealth and she is my divine mother. And she gave me that name to place in front of my name as a representation to the lineage 
of connectivity that I have with her. And in terms of the master, that was something that the gods have given me to differentiate myself from someone who does not have a level of mastery over not only their life, ascension, enlightenment, but it also gives you, um, it makes you a card carrier of their power. So when I distribute energies to people, it has the accent and the ashe, which means divine power of certain gods that I work with. And when people get this paradosis, they go into their life and a slew of things begin to occur as a result of that mastery being parlayed into their life. So Sri Master is something that they've asked me to present myself as to show that there is a difference between that part of what I do in juxtaposition to anything else that I've done. Right. Can you uh, can you take us back to the first time that you had an interaction with the gods? Uh, what what method, what sort of situation was going on? When did this happen? What was going on in your life? Sure. I have a good one. There was a, there's a story. Uh, there's an Orisha god named Shango. And Shango is very celebrated in Ifa or Lukumi. And he's the god of thunder, lightning, and the dance. And he's a very uh, celebrated god, or Orisha. He started coming to me in about 2004. And one instance in particular, somehow as an actor, I ended up being in a play playing Shango at the Riverside Baptist Church up in Harlem. And the last day, and by the way, so the play, there were... I learned a lot about Shango as a result of being in this play. And I was the only guy in the play that was not initiated into the system of Ifa. And that, what, what is Ifa? Ifa is a, it's a royal system that basically are, you are a devotee of a belief system of power that belongs to the Orisha gods, of which there are 202. So Shango, Obatala, Yemaya, Ochosi, Yemaya, they control a lot of forces of what occurs on this planet. And if you go back to Africa, it originated in Africa. And the Orisha gods are very close to certain people who are on the planet who are melanated. And it's a lot easier for them to access these gods. There have been people who have transformed into a likeness of the gods. So if you can imagine a 90-pound woman being downloaded with the energy of Shango and then transforming into a, you know, very muscular man that can lift up a boulder that's the size of this table with ease and putting it back down. These things have occurred many times on the planet. So with Ifa or Lukumi or Santeria, there are many different versions of this one system. Uh, the Orishas are part of that system and people relegate themselves and they pledge there. They, they call it crowning Ocha and they have to wear white for one year when they become a priest and also give up their old ways in order to become a priest. There are certain things that they do that give them a new identity and they are devotees of this system. So Shango in particular chose me to play him in a play. I didn't know anything about that to the degree that I do now. And out of everyone that was in the cast, I was the only one that was not initiated. So 
the last day that I performed the play, I walked out. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I was made to look up in the sky. And I saw that literally it began to get dark. And then it was thundering and lightning for the rest of the night. And I thought it was a connection to Shango. I didn't know what it meant. But when I spoke to a, a priest and I explained to him what happened the very next day, he said, that was Shango acknowledging you and thanking you for what you've done by playing him. And he's also acknowledging the fact that he asked you to play him. I've had many things where I've talked to people and then it will start thundering and lightning because Shungo begins to speak through me as I'm giving someone a ritual that he would like for them to perform. And the moment that I stop speaking, it'll stop thundering and lightning. And that person might be in the Bronx and I'll be in New Jersey and we'll hear it. So there are lots of things that occur that are a byproduct of being connected to the gods in that way. Okay, so... So I, I'm understanding that you'll see signs, you'll see physical signs in the environment, uh, but it, it, are there other ways that you have communicated with the gods, like as far as like a dialogue? Yes. And uh, even, even before any of that, what led you on a path to pursuing uh, spirituality in, in this manner? Well... I got to a very low point in my life and, you know, we all have highs and lows in our lives. But one of the things that I developed a really great appreciation for was the altar. And when I learned about the altar and how you were supposed to make offerings to your ancestors on the altar, there were times in my life where all I had was my altar. You know, nothing else was going on except the regularity that I would make offerings on my altar. You, you mean like a physical altar? Yes, a physical altar. You you had one? Yes. What, like in your house? Yes. Okay. Most people have, you know, if you go to um, the Orient, if you go to Thailand, you go to Africa, you go to India, most people have an altar in their home okay. that they salute every day. They feed their gods, they feed their ancestors, and they commune with that altar because the altar is your connection to infinity. And there are certain energies that come through the altar that transform you. And not having an altar is like not having a car. You know, if you don't have a car, it's going to suck because you have to depend on public transportation or other things. But when you have the amenity of having your own car, you can come and go as you wish. So when you have an altar, it gives you the amenity of being able to draw things from the spiritual world that most people don't have access to. And people who are smart enough to have an altar get the benefit of being able to withdraw power and all kinds of things from the energy that is presented and made available to you through the altar. So you have already, you've already had quite a strong interest in spirituality prior to you finding yourself where you are now, because you even said back in the days you were a Muslim and stuff like that. So at what point, what was a tipping point for you to really find uh, where you needed to go uh, to be where you are now. So, in other words, you didn't take these more traditional routes, maybe of religion or spirituality. Well, I where did. I did. I'm I saying, but in mm. the end, well, is let me ask this then: is is are your beliefs or or your path is it related in any way? Is there a relation relation to traditional religions um, in any way, or is it not like uh, you know being Muslim or a Christian or 
any you other know, thing like that. There, there was a there was a validity in all things. You know, if you go to Christianity, there's a, a relevancy and a purpose to the baseline of certain things that they do, and it's necessary. You know, if we didn't have people that answer to you know the doctrine that they serve, we would live in a very lawless place. And the same thing, you know, I have found the commonality. I choose more to focus on the commonality of what that's about as opposed to what we have in disbelief with that. So it's really a choice of the individual, but I, I have found that all of those things, you know, my education in Christianity has served me well because it's given me a reference point to know where people are coming from if they're still in Christianity as well as Islam and lots of other things that I've studied. So it's all been in preparatory for what I'm doing now. If I didn't have the exposure to it for as long as I have, I wouldn't be able to have the commonality of knowing what someone is going through in their belief system as opposed to it being completely alien to me. Does it have a validity in the lives of people? It really does. And eventually, if someone is honest enough with their belief system and they check in with what it is that they believe in and they're honest enough to ask themselves questions, does this still, is this still relative in my life or relevant, they're, they might be honest enough to say, I, I need to go to the next level. And going to the next level is the way of the universe. Nothing in the universe is stagnant. Everything grows and evolves. There are some people that keep themselves very small in what they do purposely because they're in fear of being ostracized. So they purposely keep a low profile because they don't want to make anything, they don't want to make anyone else uncomfortable. But the shine that's inside of them is inherent and it, when it attempts to come out, sometimes it rubs people the wrong way. But when people are in religion, there's always an opportunity for people to grow more based upon what's always being presented to them. And the spiritual world always has opportunities for people to grow and come out of the limitation of their belief system. Most people choose not to take it. So one of my jobs is to expose people to some of the rare truths that may not be as popular, but when you utilize it, it checks out because it performs something in your life that you never had access to before. I, I've seen in uh, some of the, the videos online, uh, where you're talking about uh, having a dialogue with uh, with Thoth or uh, uh, Archangel uh, Michael mm -hmm. uh, or some of these other uh, you know supernatural beings, mm -hmm. uh, what what are they? What how would you classify what what is an archangel? What who is Thoth, and how is it that you communicate with them? What what method do you use to communicate with? Uh, these beings? Well, to answer the first question, an, an archangel, archangels are a band, a fleet of celestial beings that work directly for the creator of all. Do they have wings? Um, yes, they do have wings. So, so like the religious, uh, the Christian portrayal of angels, it's, it's accurate? No, that's not accurate. A lot, unfortunately, <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the Christianized version, the, the only part that they got right was the wings. Um, wings, there are a lot of archangels that are not human. They, they don't have a humanoid depiction. A lot of them are things that you wouldn't even recognize. Uh, is it made of, would, would they be made of light or is it something like looking at, you know, you or I? 
a lot of times when the angels present themselves, they'll come in a formation that you would recognize as friendly. So a lot of times when they matriculate into the radar of a human, they'll take a human-like appearance as not to freak you out. Because if they were to come into their, come in their true form, you, you wouldn't be able to look at a being that's 200 miles tall. So they'll give you maybe a beam of light that's friendly and it'll oscillate certain energies. But archangels in particular are very vast in terms of how they look. And the wings are literal. There are parts of your astral form that actually have wings. And there's a very relative purpose for your wings to be there. But it's foreign to most humans because you associate wings with birds and maybe flights. But if you look at some of the gods who are depicted in Mesopotamian lore or Sumerian lore, they have wings. Or if you look at some of the comedic gods like us, she has wings. And that doesn't just denote height or flight. It actually denotes an ability to be able to fly. So so could you tell us about a, a particular time that you interacted with the Archangel Michael? There have been many times. Um, Maybe one in particular. Okay. So I went to Paris and... We were in a square, and it wasn't in Sacré-Cœur. It was in another square called, uh, well, I don't know what the name of the square was, but I was there with a whole bunch of people, and I kept feeling this very intense sensation, and I turned around, and it was a huge statue of Archangel Michael, and I said, that's very interesting. And the thing with Archangel Michael is how he communicates um, is through a series of 444. So literally, wherever I go, I will see that accent 444, 444, 44 here, 444 there. Um, we had a very interesting thing that he downloaded into me, which was a cutting of cords. And I asked him what this whole thing was about, and he explained very clearly that there are people on the planet, and how this conversation took place is telepathically. So I'll literally ask questions and I will hear his voice. And you were sitting in the square during this time? No, this was something completely different. So I, I didn't give you a segue. But to make it clear, and this is a segue, this is something different. Um, cutting cords, when I asked him what the cutting of the cords was about, he explained that there are people on a planet that have a need to be cut away from a web of energy that they've created and that energy is impeding the planet to a great degree spiritually. So we're gonna give you some energy that will allow you to separate those people from the cords. We'll be standing behind you and we'll also create the current from this object that looks like the Ashanti dagger from the movie, The Golden Child. That object was not made in this world, but it's very heavy. And when I touch people with it, some people have a very powerful reaction. And a lot of times when people see me doing it, they see wings behind me. They can see the outline of a very powerful being, whether it's Archangel Michael or Archangel Gabriel, and they stand behind me and ensoul the off-world instrument. Um, they also have told me that I have a covenant of raising, believe it or not, 144,000 souls onto the path of ascension. That came from Archangel Michael directly. When I asked him why that is or what that's supposed to be, he says, well, you made an agreement to help people to ascend because you've already completed 
ascension and a few different of your lifetimes and you wanted to help bring other people to the gateway of ascension. So the creator has given you that job because it's a huge job. But there were other sacrifices that I had to make in order to make that a reality. And some of those sacrifices are very interesting. So Archangel Michael is a big part of what we do at Galacticus, and he's always present. Um, the angels don't, a lot of times people say that they see angels and they don't. It's very dangerous for you to see a god or an angel. And can you guess any particular reason why that would be? <laughs> is it like is it Thank like um, looking at the the Ark of the Covenant? It's just too powerful. It will like burn up or something. That's that could be. But let's go a little further. Let's go behind that. But wait, wait, wait. But okay. But these th this situation is it something you're trying to manifest through a practice, trying to reach a a state between being conscious and unconscious? Is it something that goes through deep meditation? Or are you just out and about on the street and, you know, that energy happens on the spot around people or by yourself? It, what I'm trying to understand like is... the transmission that happens? Yes, have, I'm very curious to understand that. Is it, it the, something that you have to bring forth? No, or is it, it something that just that comes to you when it comes to you? Yeah, it happens spontaneously. Sometimes it happens to other people and they report it to me and they, they'll say, you know, I had this vision that you would... I'll give you an example. There was a student that I had, and I have this recorded on, on YouTube. So she calls me, and we're talking. We, we get to the end of a 45-minute conversation, and then she just happens to say, oh, by the way, I wanted to tell you that I had this dream that I was on the back of a very long line, and you and Archangel Michael were standing there in the front, and you had this golden list and Archangel Michael looked at me, you both looked at me, and Archangel Michael just shook his head like, no. And when I finally got to the line, you checked off, yes. And then I woke up. And she said, what was that? The moment she told me that, I had a memory of exactly what that was. And Archangel Mike, she was one of the people who was destined for ascension, but she was going to screw it up, and Archangel Michael knew that, so he advised me not to allow her into the studentship program. And I didn't listen to him. So I allowed her to come into the program and this girl disappeared. I haven't heard from her in months. So he was right. Wow. Lots of other people have given me things that they have seen of me with Archangel Michael and it's a real thing. But to answer the question that I posed to you, there are people that pontificate and say, oh, I see angels all the time. I see Archangel Michael, and he's this fair-skinned, blonde-haired guy, and it, it's, it's laughable almost because they are not really that. One of the things that people need to understand is that these beings are immense, and if they were to present their, if they were to present their full form to you, not only would it be damaging, but it would cause your life to be turned inside out. If there were anything, if there was anything present in your life that wasn't part of your destiny, just by virtue of you seeing that divine being, it would have to fall away. So if you were living in a place where you weren't supposed to be living, immediately you would have to leave that place. The building owner would come and knock on your door and say, you need to be out of here yesterday. If you had 
some kind of disease that was supposed to run its course, it will come up immediately. And I've seen this happen with people that actually did have an impromptu visitation from the gods. It actually happened when uh, Lakshmi came into my life, my divine mother. My life went down south for two years. And um, it wasn't something that was kind. I wasn't ready to have that interface. But just by her presenting herself into my life, everything that wasn't supposed to be there quickly left. And I had to kind of crawl my way back to some kind of normalcy by having everything stripped away from me. So that's the danger that's associated with how you're being showing themselves in your life. It does have a repercussion to it. Well, I, I guess if a, if a building is run down, sometimes you got to knock it down. I mean, I mean, we see that going on in New York, right? Absolutely. You know, so if, if, you're, if you're filled with a whole bunch of things in your life that is not your destiny, well, then maybe the gods should show themselves and get all that shit out of the way, right? Well, it's, it's really, you know, you, a lot of people don't allow themselves to see that, but for people who are ready, yeah, that does happen. And a lot of people don't survive it. A lot of people don't live through that. So, so you're saying that when you would interact with these, with these beings, you would be like out, like how we are now, just sitting in a situation, not seeking it, and you would come into contact with some sort of sign, and it would trigger, it would trigger an experience. You, you would see someone as if you're seeing another human, or you would see someone, uh, 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 something slightly hinted at in, in the form of light? It, it depends. There, there was a conversation that I had with Lakshmi. I have a huge statue of her, and her statue turned into uh, a, basically a woman. And it was very difficult for me to look at her. And I was in the comfort of my own It was home. daytime or nighttime? It was at nighttime. It was after 10 o'clock, and I had my candles lit. And I, I think I had shifted gears in my consciousness because I was ready to communicate with her. So it's not like I was driving down a block and she appeared. It didn't happen that way. When I spoke to her directly, literally, I didn't expect to speak to her. But I looked over and the statue came to life. And she kept saying, look at me, Gano. And it was very difficult for me to hold her gaze because it was extremely opulent. It was like having a sensory overload. And we had a five-minute conversation. And she told me that I was an avatar of Lord Ganesha. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she explained to me, and she took me back into, if you can imagine this, she walked me through my entire life from age 10 all the way up to the present. In conversation? In conversation. Um, in that conversation, somehow I was able to look at every moment that she highlighted where I used the intelligence of Lord Ganesha and I illustrated that I am an avatar of him. And she said, these are all the times where you used his intelligence. What do you think that's about? What, what, what exactly is an avatar in, in this scenario? An, an avatar, if you play a video game and or if you play Monopoly, you play Monopoly before, right? You choose an avatar, which is your vehicle. So the vehicle that you choose to go around the board would be your avatar. Or if you're playing the video game, you have you know Mario and Luigi, you're going to choose to either be Mario or Luigi. That would be your avatar. I happen to be a living avatar of a higher being called, called Lord Ganesha. And that's not something I knew at all before I spoke directly to Lakshmi and she told me that. And I struggled for a year to accept that until 
many people started to see me as him in their visions, in their dreams, and just in life in general. They would see me morphing in and out of his form. And when I asked why that was happening, it's because, well, this is a reality. Other people, we need to prove to you that that's a real thing. So the spiritual world caused many other people to see that and to give me the confidence to believe something that she shared about me that I didn't know. Do you think that it's possible to interact uh, with the spirit world or perhaps talk to gods uh, through the use of DMT, ayahuasca, uh, psilocybin, uh, these type of methods? Uh, do you think it's possible to do that? And if so, would it be something that is more in-depth or vivid than just being sober? It is possible to communicate with, you know, I don't want to just say gods, but I would say exalted beings. So that lends itself to everything that is not human. Elementals, daemonians, codons, phosphogrims. You can speak to anything and everything. Orbs of light, all are sentient beings. So if you are under the, uh, the contact of all of the things that you named, it is possible to communicate with them. If, you know, and, it, and the reason that it happens is because these are all agents that open up the windows of your consciousness and allow you to perceive on a greater level. And most people are not keyed in to do that naturally. So when the spiritual veil opens up, you can actually see the gods and experience angelic beings and higher beings that don't fit into this reality because they're just too big. Have you ever been a part of any of these sort of uh, like an ayahuasca ceremony or something like that? And if so, could you talk about it? Could you give us an idea of what your experience was like? I have. I, um, I met ayahuasca a few years ago, and there was a friend of mine who was an ayahuasquera, and she did over 200 different journeys with her. And she told me, she said, you know, I've seen you, and I've seen the back of your head speaking to a sea of people. I said, okay. And she also said that ayahuasca said that you're going to come to her and she wants to talk with you. I said, cool. Wait, she, she describes ayahuasca as being a she? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I know her also to be of a feminine polarity. She's an intelligence that would be called an initiatic or an elemental goddess. So her job literally is to take people um, to another plateau in their awareness. So when I went to a circle, there was a shaman there, and we drank the ayahuasca. Was that, was that in the U.S.? Um, it was at an undisclosed location, <laughs> I'll say that. And um, it was a ceremony. And prior to that, you know, I, I'm a purist, so I, like, I don't do things recreationally. I do everything that I do ceremonially because it has a higher agenda. So, you know, I prepared no sex, no salt, sugar, meat, dairy for five days before and after. And I wanted to be, it was very difficult for me to do that, but I powered through it and I went to the ceremony and, you know, I ingested it like everyone else. And there were about 10 people in the room and certain people were, you know, they were shaking violently and other people were throwing up and I was just sitting there, you know. And I'm like, okay, nothing's happening. 
So I went back up to the shaman and I drank another dosage. And he said, hold on a second. So we took out a flute, you know, he began to play the flute on my crown chakra. And I'm like, okay. So I got up to walk back to my spot and I couldn't walk. <laughs> so I fell down and I said, oh. And then the whole place transformed into a black forest with trees and the trees were looking at me and I said, uh-oh, I'm in here. And uh, I crawled back like a coward to my spot. And I, you know, I, I, I wanted to do this, but when I did this, I could still see. So it was very, that passed for a while. And then I began to get, um, my life turned into this thick book. And that's how I would analogize it. And whew, all these lifetimes, I was seeing my lifetimes. And then we got to the last, I would say 10 pages. And I would say, you could do whatever you want to my body, but I'll never leave God and that place. So I saw myself, my body was being destroyed. I saw all the times where I sacrificed my life. Ayahuasca showed me that. This is where you were a martyr. This is where you were a martyr. You destroyed yourself a lot because of your beliefs. And then at the end, I said, I am God. I am God. Didn't know what that meant. And then she showed me uh, some people in a coffin that were incorruptibles. She said, yeah, you, you're, you achieved that a couple of times. Then when I looked at what an incorruptible was, you know what an incorruptible is, right? No. It's, I get an idea based on the name, but um, you explain it. Okay. Well, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon where someone achieves a level of enlightenment. And when their body deceases, they are buried. But somehow, the body begins to emit a very powerful smell of honey or rose or cinnamon. <clears throat> and people will around the neighborhood will say, where is that smell coming from? And when they investigate it, they'll find that there's a coffin that's kind of peeking out. And then they'll get the proper officials to come and take the coffin and look at it. And then they will find a very glowing body that has not decayed. So there are many of those, and uh, she showed me that I've achieved the incorruptible state in different lifetimes. And also, I've been ripped apart and quartered and lots of other things. So one of the reasons- Wait, wait, wait. in your past lifetimes, you've been what, uh, like uh, put to death like that? Many times. <laughs> so you're a rowdy guy. Uh, <laughs> you, 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 I, I, cause, you cause some- that, the people that put me to death definitely thought I was rowdy, so yeah, I'd say so. You know, my, my thing was really just to help people to wake up, but that hasn't always been met with open arms. So ayahuasca showed me, you know, those lifetimes, and I said, wow. Um, so it was a very powerful, you know, transmission. I'm grateful for it. And how did that experience affect you afterward? Uh, did you spend a lot of time, you know, reflecting on what you saw? Did it make you want to do it again? Well... I, it, it gave me a deeper appreciation for the continuance of life. And it made me want to, you know, not waste any time. So it gave me a, a stronger sense of purpose. And it also highlighted the fact that I'm on the right path. And I said, you know, I don't want to go through that again. You know, I don't want to go through having my body ripped apart. And one of the things that also I found was fortunate, they said that the gods respect you because you have sacrificed many of your lifetimes in the pursuit of helping other people to become 
enlightened and evolved. And that's also why they're more inclined to work with you and interface with you because you've earned their trust. And also as a gift, we have traced you back to your own God form. And that's a, a gift, I guess. I don't want to say a consolation prize, but I'll take it. It's a beautiful thing. Right. So when did you go from uh, learning and having interaction with uh, with spirits to being in a position to going out and teaching or, or coordinating uh, workshops or, or uh, seminars? Uh, when? How did that happen? How did that come about? When did you start doing that? I've been giving seminars publicly and speaking publicly for, this is going to be, I believe, the fourth year. And how that came about was there was a lady that told me about uh, a meditation circle that she would do. And uh, she was given this modality about taking earth into your heart and praying for the planet. And I thought that was a great idea. So I started doing the same thing. And we called some people together. We would meet every Friday at high noon and we would lock pinkies and pray for the planet and we would do certain meditations and mantras and we would direct the energy onto the planet. Then I received something called words of power and words of power are words that are created by the gods and they basically change the reality around you. And when I received these words, I started using words of power to change my life and that was a lot of fun. So to give you an example, we got one word that would allow you to give someone a miracle. So I would walk up to complete strangers and ask if they wanted a miracle. And some of them would look at me like I'm crazy. And certain other people would say, I'll take it. So I would put my hands on them and I would say the word and say, take care. And I never saw them again. There was a woman that I was with for a short period of time. And we were hanging out one day. And as we were leaving, I saw this guy walking towards her, us. And she stopped to speak to him. And I could tell that he was wearing about four or five different pairs of pants underneath his pants. And he looked like, you know, you see the energy of death on someone when they have cancer or full-blown AIDS. And I whispered to her and I said, you know, do you think he would mind if I give him a miracle? She said, ask him. So I said, do you mind if I give you a miracle? And he said, yes, uh, like he was expecting it. So I gave him the miracle and, you know, he said, thank you very much. Two weeks later, she called me and she said, you know, Gano, that guy that we saw that day, he came up to me and he gained all of his weight back and he said that he doesn't have cancer anymore. I said, that's cool. She said, that was that, that miracle that you gave him, isn't it? I said, probably. A lot of times, I, I've done that, I would say, over a thousand times. I don't do that anymore because I was told that I was preparing for what I'm doing now. And they wanted to test my willingness to give these energies to people just out of pure intention. So a lot of things that I did, you know, I did it in practicality for what I'm doing now. And that was just one of the many things that um, led me to what we're doing. So the outgrowth of Galacticus came out of an imperative for us just to give Mother Earth some energy through getting together like-minded people that wanted to pray for people on the planet that were imperiled and lots of other things. As corny as it sounds, you know, Galacticus is a movement that was birthed out of that. And it's been a major source of blessings for, you know, myself and everyone that was involved. All right. 
So how, how necessary is it to incorporate objects in ceremonies, uh, objects such as candles or uh, symbols that are, you know, molded out of uh, precious uh, materials of some sort? Are, are these things just uh, done for traditional reasons, or is there something physical about having these objects around you that, that makes the experience more intense or, or is a necessary ingredient? It really depends on where the object comes from. And when I send attunements to people in certain energies, it's because of some of the objects that I have. Some of the objects that I have are, again, they're off-world and they weren't created here, but they download themselves in physical form and they make their way to the person who's supposed to have it. So when you're dealing with shamans or higher priests or certain masters or adepts, they usually have an arsenal of objects that would seem pretty normal. They may have the regular falcon feather or a ring or something that seems innocuous, but it has a lot of power to it. And it is necessary to translate certain energies into the person who receives it. And it is a very powerful relativity to it. There's a device that I got from Lord Talk and it's called the Cosmic Beacon, and it connects people to their divine parents. So I've had many testimonies of people who have gotten the Cosmic Beacon from me, and they'll look up in the sky, and they'll see the clouds will form the face of the god Odin, and Odin will smile at them, and then the clouds will disappear. People will have very powerful things that happen right from the tapestry of their reality based upon the device that they got from me because the device has certain energies in it that make that occur. So in one of your videos, you, you were talking about, I think it's called Moldavite, right? Moldavite. Moldavite. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because you said it, it played a big part in, yeah, the, Moldavite, in your path. Moldavite, definitely, it's, it's, a, it's an asteroid. And Moldavite is like a cosmic antenna. So when you have a good piece of Moldavite, it can do things in your life that will heighten your connection to the cosmos and it'll draw to you certain information that come from the ethers. So I have a Moldavite video on my YouTube channel that spoke about a very interesting set of things that happened during the period where I first started wearing Moldavite and, you know, I encapsulated it there. But usually when people are beginning on their spiritual journey at a certain point, they'll come across the crystals that will be responsible for taking them to the next level, be it kyanite, selenite, citrine, congo, or lapis lazuli. All of these stones play a role in bringing the participant to the next level in their education. They'll attract those stones into their lives. So it plays a very palpable role in your own evolution. So for somebody who's trying to go down the spiritual path, and they're just, they're just starting. What would be a good starting point for them, maybe with some stones or something like that? What, what, is, what is like the correct way to start to really, you know, focus in on that path? Well, one of the things that, that's, you know, it, be, being aware of the stones that you're drawn to. So if you go to a shop that has, you know, certain gemstones in it and you find that you have an affinity with a certain stone, get the stone. Take the stone home, rinse it off in cold water for 20 seconds, 
take the stone in your hand and clarify it and thank the stone for being in your life and ask the stone to bring you what it will. You could sleep with the stone or you could have it on your person and develop a relationship with it. Become aware of the things that begin to occur as a result of you having the stone. And you'll see that these are things that basically the stone or the energy of it has brought into your life. So there is a relativity between, you know, this, the stones are part of the gemstone kingdom. And the gemstone kingdom has a great role to play in the development of human consciousness. Are there gemstones that are, you know, negative, have negative energy or, or objects that have negative energy that should be avoided? There are lots of objects that have, that are encoded with negative energy that people should avoid at all costs. Uh, but gemstones by and large are pretty positive. I wouldn't, you know, I would make sure that the stone is authentic, make sure that it's not synthetic and you don't, you know, skulls are certain, unfortunately, you know, skulls are supposed that there's a duality when it comes to stones. So when people get, uh, excuse me, skulls, people get skulls, like they have crystal skulls and those skulls are supposed to house a lot of universal knowledge. But then there are other skulls that people have that are used for dark ceremony. And that's not something that you really want to deal with or any type of blood sacrifice with animals unless it is something that is called for by an Ifa priest that will trade in some negative energy through the life of another animal who has agreed to sacrifice its life on your behest. So human sacrifice also is not something that you ever want to partake in or making a deal with a demon is not something that you want to, you know, call about. If you look at a lot of the people that are being vetted right now in Hollywood, you know, we don't need to say any names. A lot of those people have made deal with, deals with demons. And the demons have their payback in snatching the rug up from underneath your feet. And that's their payback, which is your downfall. And there's a lot of people that have done that. And, you know, not saying that what they did was right but they haven't had the rug snatched from underneath their feet because they did not make an agreement with a darker principality. So if you look at people, unfortunately, like Paula Dean, Bill Cosby, it looks like that is a hallmark signature uh, deal that was made with the demon because they'll let you rise to a very powerful point and then out of nowhere, something will knock you off your access and your name will forever be tarnished. And we've seen many examples of that. And that's how the demons basically give power and then take it away from you. So that's something that I would avoid at all costs. All right. I want to, I want to try something where I want to ask you a bunch of very general questions and just give me, give me as direct of an answer as you can. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Cool. All right. Uh, who is God? Who is God? God is not the creator. All right. Is it God or gods? It's multiplicity of gods. Okay. Uh, are, are human beings indigenous to this planet? Some of them are. Some of them are. Okay. Uh, is the devil real? Not that version. Okay. Uh, what is the difference between angels and aliens? Angels work directly from the creator. Aliens are life forms that have evolved into the form that they are in now. And sometimes some of them were once humans. Okay. 
All right, let's 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 get a little more in depth. No, let's get a little more in depth with that. You're going to knock me off my seat. Nah, nah. <laughs> so okay, so uh, aliens. Okay, what what is the connection between aliens and angels? Are they on the same level? Uh, you know, the the creator of this universe or universes or, or whatever it is, is it multiple creators? You know, uh, what, what, how does this stuff all make sense and, and fit together? You know, are, are, are aliens just like us? And then there's some supreme beings that are on another level? Well, the quixotic that you pose when you say aliens, you know, that's a simple terminology with a very broad, you know, broad, uh, it's, it's a broad implication. So when you say aliens, you're talking about a menagerie and a blanket or, or, or a diaspora of many different kinds of beings who are actually alien. Anything that's not, that's extraterrestrial, which is the name of this planet, Terra, if it's extra or outside of Terra's original construct, it is alien, or it's extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial, that would make it or qualify it as an alien. Everything outside of Earth's construct is an alien. So when you say alien, it's almost as if you're talking about that one alien over there, and that's not what you're talking about. Oh. You have many different worlds, sentient beings. You have Zeta Reticular Grays. You have Arcturians, Beta. You have Draconians. You have Syrians. You have many different kinds of beings that would all classify themselves as, as aliens because they're not from here, and a lot of them don't like humans at all. Some aliens have never interfaced with humans. Some aliens would see humans as less than a grain of sand. Some aliens are friendly to humans. And to answer your question, aliens, there are some aliens that are connected and they have seeded life on this planet. There are many different alien races that have come here and progenitive life on this planet hundreds and thousands of years ago. There's a Council of Andromeda that had a hand in creating life on this planet. There are Ishwish beings that have come from the Vega star system. They've seeded life on this planet. There have been Pleiadians that have seeded life on this planet. And they all have a vested interest in seeing how their progeny is doing. Sometimes they check in and they look and see how the uh, the elements in the Petri dish are evolving. And that's the relativity of why aliens have such a kinship with humans to a large degree. Well, what, what is the interaction, if any, to, you know, uh, Archangel Michael or, or Thoth? You know, what, what kind of interaction do these spiritual beings have to aliens that have seeded life here on Earth? Well, if you look at Archangel Michael in particular, Archangel Michael might have, he might give them certain assignments because a lot of the aliens that come here are future beings that are able to go into their past and correct certain mistakes to speed up evolution a lot faster, if that makes sense. So they use the energy and the intelligence of the gods or certain of the angelic hosts in order to do that. That's how they got the information in the first place. Okay. Um, what about Donald Trump? What do you think about Donald Trump? <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, I thought you were going to throw some hardballs. What's going on? Yeah. Now? <laughs> Donald Trump is very interesting. There is a, there's a book about Donald Trump. There's a couple of books that are written in 1895 and 1900 in particular that talk about a guy named Baron Trump or 
you know, they they basically is it's a looking glass kind of book that talk about in the future how someone is going to be the leader of this um this not this age but of this uh this time that we're in and they're going to be met with a lot of revile and it's interesting that the trump name is associated with books that were written in 1900 in 1895 it's it's not a coincidence that you know donald trump and biff tannen are basically tantamount so there are too many implications that basically spell out that he most likely is a an alleged time traveler who was able to go into the past and insert himself in the seat of power right now and usurp the good common sense of people who would never have voted him there in the first place. I'm glad you brought I'm glad you brought this up <laughs> um, because I actually want to talk to you about time and time travel. Um, because I've heard you mention it in your videos. Right. Um, and I've also heard you talk about um, kind of how ideas are just in the in the ether kind of, and they could be pulled out by people kind of like from the future. They can pull them out and make them a reality now. Like I know you had, I think you had mentioned Steve Jobs as, a, as an example of somebody right. who, had, who was able to tap into this. That's right. Can you talk to us more about that, like about that idea? Well, you know, according to legend steve jobs was in was a was a buddhist and he dealt with meditation to a certain degree and when people meditate literally and they get to a, they get proficient enough to be able to pull data that is in the upper registers of their consciousness they could bring they could download that information and make it you know you you i'm sure are doing that in higher registers of your consciousness with bringing the art to this world that you know, people look at and say, well, how did they do that? I've never seen anybody do that before. Oh, you have a certain color scheme where you know you write your name and then there's this, these characters that are like hiding behind the hand style of your letters. A lot of, I haven't seen that done if ever before. I'm not saying you, you know, did you originate that or did you get that I'm from pretty, someone else? I'm pretty sure I did. Nah, nah, I'm on my own path. Right, so <laughs> you know, you're solidifying my point that everyone has an ability to go into the upper regions of their awareness and bring down things that are just floating up there. And if you look at you know Leonardo da Vinci or some of the other greats who were really more in tune with their ability to do so, they brought about, <coughs> excuse me, artistic pieces that people still scratch their heads and say, how are they able to do that? So you know even if you look at someone like J.K. Rowling's, who wrote the whole Harry Potter thing. You know, these are real places in the ethers that, you know, the spells and the magic and Dumbledore and all of these people, you know, she didn't make any of that stuff up. It was something that she was able, because she was a very clear writer and sensitive enough to get into the artisan aspect of who she is, to be able to go into these higher dimensionalities and word for word write down certain things that are real constructs somewhere else. So when people meditate or they allow themselves to, you know, respond to their multidimensionality, they're able to bring back inventions, artwork, songs that don't exist here, but present them here. I've heard songs 
that never were recorded on this world that are amazing from artists that don't even, you know, there was a time I was on a, I was on a Learjet and uh, it's a two-way Learjet. It was interesting. I'm sitting on a Learjet and Beyonce is facing this way and I'm facing this way. And she has on some, this is before Beats by Dre was out. So she had on a pair of headphones that look like Beats by Dre. And you can hear the song she was practicing. It was a reference song. So a lot of artists, they'll get a song as a reference and before they record it. But she referenced her own song. And I was hearing it. I said, wow, that's going to be powerful once it hits the planet. And I know all of her songs. And I went through and just to check, you know, songs that she may have released. And that was about four years ago. And that song hasn't made its way to this world yet. But the song is recorded and polished on another dimension of reality. So there are lots of things that I've come across and I remembered it and I bring it back here. And that's the difference between someone who becomes more proficient at holding the data of what they see and what they experience and bringing it back as opposed, as opposed to someone who goes to sleep every night and they don't remember their dreams. Wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that, are you saying that Beyonce is, is tapped into the future with a, a catalog of music? I'm saying that not only is she in the future, we are all in the future with things that this world may never see. But the benefit of someone who is willing to open their consciousness up, they may be able to take some of those things and bring them here and change the world for the better. So the idea then that all things possible exist and that some people are able to tune into that and pull things out and make it a reality in this dimension, on this plane. That's right. Okay. That's well, right. we got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty well, much. Well, I, I, I believe that the best way that I've had, the, the most progress I've had is by looking into myself and sort of getting, figuring out uh, emotionally how within myself some sort of conclusion and being able to harness that and express that in some manner uh, it's kind of like kind of like uh with with anything you know like a deep rooted you know passion that's expressed uh through a craft or something like that right uh but i i, I guess i guess that comes with you know deep concentration uh it does you know what i would say is that if you look at an acorn, I see acorns littered on you know, the street or in parks all the time, hundreds of them, thousands of them. You can count all of the acorns that are out there. Each one of those acorns will never become the tree that is inside of it. And every acorn has the blueprint of a full-grown tree inside of it. Humans have an imprint of a divine being inside of them. And when you look at someone like Baba G, or you look at Lord Buddha, or if you look at someone that has achieved a great amount of occurrences that are documented, that fly in the face of what science is able to measure as accurate or real, it shows you that these beings have used this their divine power while they were still in human form to illustrate that there's a lot more to be said about creation than is known or taught. 
So one of the things that I explain to people is if you're willing to open yourself up and to learn how to create miracles or things that don't make any sense, you'll know that eternity is available for everyone. And one of the things that I gave people in a seminar that I did about eight months ago, it was called the Big Picture Seminar. There's a modality that I got from Lord Talk called Sequence of Power. And these Sequence of Power are stronger than words of power. One of the Sequence of Power actually allows you to restore life to the dead. And when I showed what it looked like to the audience, people were very open to it. And they wrote it, they wrote down what it was. And some of them have had success with that sequence of power. So when we did the seminar in the big picture seminar in Atlanta, I'm sitting there with some of my students. The next day, this guy comes up to me, Shoe Master Cano, it worked. I'm so grateful. And I said, What are you talking about? He said, That sequence of power that that gives life to the dead. My children had a bird and the bird died. So I took the bird. And I told my children about how I might be able to bring it back to life. So he said that he put his hand over the bird. Now, the bird had been dead for two days already. The kids just didn't want to get rid of it because they hadn't found a place to bury it. He said that he put his hand over the bird, and he thought about the sigil for the sequence of power. And he said what it was. And he said that the bird started to move. And the bird came back to life. And to the delight of his children. And they looked at him, and they were less concerned with the miracle that just occurred than they were with the fact that they had their bird back. So he says, I know that what you're teaching us is powerful. I have no questions. I can't wait to become a student, and I'm a devout follower of what you do because I can't find this anywhere else. So what I explain to people is that even if you use something like death, death is an illusion that people accept as something that's real. Most people will create the, the complex thought form of what their death is going to be. And when that complex thought form comes to them, they will embrace it and they will leave this world. But enlightened people don't die. Enlightened people simply shift gears. They drop the body and move on to the next existence in a higher dimensionality somewhere else. And enlightened people don't allow themselves to be unconscious when they leave this world. So there are so many different things that humans need to let go of. And one of the things that the gods say about earthlings is that, you know, earth has a long way to go. You guys are still dying on that planet. You guys are still fighting each other. You guys are still bickering over whose skin is lighter and darker and who has power. You guys are still deceiving each other. You guys have a long way to go. But if you guys use this and you use this, it might speed up your evolution a little bit. And good luck with that. So humans are very, very lost in terms of what they think is real and what they give credence to what they think is real. And again, one of my jobs is to help straighten out some of that inequity. So, so in, in your analogy where, where seeds that might blossom into being spiritual entities uh, spiritual. Or, or spiritually awakened entities... I, I, I would I would give it a better title than that. Yes, we, we are all seeds, but what's in the seed is the potential of something far greater. And everyone has that potential nascent inside of them. So so in your 
is your belief that when we die, we get cycled back into the earth again and become a, a, a new being, a new human? Some people, they come back and they call it samsara. So mo when most people die, they'll go into the afterlife, the human afterlife, which is a wasteland, unfortunately, of people who didn't know who they really were. And they'll clamor to come back for another attempt at gaining mastery over what the the opportunity was that they didn't take advantage of. So what ha what happens beyond, let's say you reach a state where you figure out who you are. Uh, is what what happens beyond being a human being on Earth? Like, do you do you transcend? Do you go to another universe realm? Well, okay. If if you look at life on Earth, it's very minimal. The threshold for human enjoyment is very low. You know, people don't allow themselves to smile at another human being without, you know, you wouldn't be able to tolerate a smile from somebody on a train and they're smiling at you without you thinking that they're crazy or without you being offended. When we have an orgasm, you know, we don't allow that orgasm to last more than 30 seconds or a minute. We don't allow ourselves to laugh more than two minutes without being coming afraid that we're going to die from the pain of the euphoria of what brought that laughter about. So the human default program is an aperture of limitation that we allow ourselves to be part of in life. What's beyond that is much more. And I've seen you know, what the higher realms look like. And there are infinite possibilities. So, you know, you wouldn't have to take a plane anywhere. You could just think your way there. You know, a hug might last for 24 hours. An orgasm could last as long as you want it to be. You could be walking around in an orgasmic state. There are states that are beyond perfection. Here on this planet, people are arguing about the right to be not perfect. I'm perfectly flawed and it's okay. I don't want to be perfect. We're, we're perfectly, you know, and beautifully flawed. And that's going to be our new acceptance. So humans have not learned how to expect things that are given freely by the divine. They don't want it. So people will question things like they'll question me. They'll say, well, why, why are you trying to teach us this? Why do you, why do you charge $300 to come to your seminar that costs you $40,000 to do in a hotel? Why do I have to you know, who are you to espouse these things? But they'll drink a glass of Hennessy that will destroy their liver with no equivocation. They won't vet that out at all. So there's a very strange dynamic that comes with people that don't accept the invitation to become a divine being as much as there is a, an acceptance for blindly being a limited human. And that's something on this planet that basically rules the day. All right. So, so in life, it's it's a situation where it's sort of a test. You're you're here to to grow, build, whatever that tip you're on. Uh, then you have angels, spirits. You have the devil. You have alien species. You said, you said the devil. That's your thing. I I don't give any energy to that. <laughs> demons. You said demons. I said demons. Right. All right. Demons whatever they're called. Okay. Right. <laughs> demons are negative. Demons have a, a negative influence on the scheme of things? 
Right. They, they don't have your best interest at heart. All right. Let's just put them. Right. Okay. You have them. Then you have God, which is supposed to be the contrast of that, perhaps or not, or gods. Then you have aliens. Then you have different divine beings, uh, all sort of sticking their hand in and meddling with the way things are swaying on earth, trying to influence people to go this way or that way or be about this or that. How does that all operate? To what extent can these different forces all interact on earth? Are they embedded in, in uh, religious practices, government, entertainment, uh, just people in general, and do they beef? Yes, they do. Uh, and they are the, the darker forces. And who's in charge? Uh, not, not the ones that you think. Not the ones that present themselves as being who, in charge. Who? Uh, who's in charge? Yeah, Joe wants names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. That's not something that, you know, I don't, not many of us know. You know, who's pulling the strings behind the things that happen on this world that, you know, are reported every day. So the people that are behind the media, the government, the monetary system, the monarchies are all taking instructions from other beings who have been in the same body for thousands of years and they don't allow themselves to be known. And there are people behind the quote-unquote Rockefellers or Bilderbergers that give instructions and give orders and they have, you know, a certain agenda that they are, you know, bringing forth for a desired outcome. Yeah, but if aliens got beef with some some dude that's been on this planet for a thousand years, why don't they just kill him? Well, that's not always the end all and the be all because a lot of times they're they're a cell. There are many different cells. So, you know, cutting off the head of the leader is not going to arrest, you know, the situation or stop the movement that's been set in motion for hundreds of thousands of years before, you know, you became aware that there was a problem. It doesn't always solve the equation. Well, can can an angel physically harm or physically do things or is it just more uh, acting via you know a vessel like a like a being like a human being trying to influence human beings are they are they do they have can they have physical contact can they do things yeah the the, the angels are infinite beings they can deal they can affect one million different people in the same nanosecond in a very different way at the same time but that but i'm saying that they have to do it through people no, can, they can do it directly, but they can find many artful ways. They can use the environment. They could use thoughts that are in your head. There's no limitation to how angels, but they'll do it in a way that's not damaging to your construct. Well, what is what is the ultimate purpose of these beings? What is it that that is trying to be accomplished, or 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 what is what is the path that these that these beings are trying to? When you to say these out? beings, who are you referring to? All the, of the them. gods. Well, the gods are, okay, so if you look at a football field, right, and you look at a football game, and you look at, you know, what is the biggest stadium that you know? Right. We're not sports people. Well, yeah, no, I'm not either, so <laughs> that's why I asked. Um, but let's, let's just say, you know, the MetLife thing over there in, in Secaucus, I drive by there sometimes, and that's a pretty big stadium. They had the Super Bowl there a couple of years ago. Let's just say 30,000 maybe 80,000 seats, people who are sitting there watching two games. They're watching a game of two teams. Then you have the people that own the teams that are playing. Then you have people that own the stadium. 
And then you have people that don't even get involved, but they own it all. And one of the thing about the things about the gods is that there are many different kinds of gods. There are gods that belong to different pantheons that have some connection to humanity. Then you have gods that have never been known to humans at all. There are billions and billions of gods. What gods have a stake in humanity would be maybe the Olympians or the Titans, the Veda gods, the Orisha, the Naturu. So they all have planted life on this planet. So they have a vested interest in some of their, their children that they've placed here. The same way that you would have a vested interest in, you know, if any of you have children going to their soccer game or going to see them in a play that they've prepared for for a few months. You have a vested interest by one level removed because that's your child. If they had a grandchild, if you have grandchildren, I have grandchildren, and I have a very vested interest in my grandchildren because I pay for everything that they do because they're mine. And I feel like I want them to be exposed to things that I didn't have an opportunity to be exposed to. And as every generation goes by, my connection to them increases. I want to have more to do with the welfare of them. That's something that kind of happens by osmosis, if you see where I'm going. So when the gods see life on this planet and they have something to do with, let's say, the mythology of Prometheus. Prometheus was a titan that gave the exclusivity of light or fire to men. Zeus punished him because Zeus knew that humanity wasn't ready really to deal with what the implications of fire was. And they were going to cause havoc and war and destruction based upon using fire the wrong way. Prometheus saw the opposite side of the spectrum. So these gods constantly, you know, I have a woman that came to four, I do seminars in four parts. So I had the big picture seminar. She came to all four of them and she stood up and she said, you know, Sri Master Gano, I keep seeing Zeus. Zeus keeps coming to me. And Zeus is always reaching his hand down to me. And I remember, I don't remember much, but I remember like being with him. And she said, is this real? I said, yeah, it's real. She said, well, why is it happening? I said, well, first of all, you need to know that Zeus and you have, you have a connection to him, but you have to be careful with Zeus because he's not one that likes to share. And if he's extending his hand to you, it's because you're probably his wife somewhere else. The human version of you is just becoming aware of something that's been going on for thousands of years. And it matriculates into your consciousness as you having dreams or visions of a divine being. And Zeus is very real. He's very powerful. So I gave her, I said, well, I gave her some ritual that she can do to have a direct conversation with him and find out how she can extricate some power from him. So I'm kind of waiting to see what happens with him. And the, the, the relativity of the gods is, the reason that the gods exist, and I think what you might really want to ask, is if God is not the creator, right? And the creator of all, there's a big, there's a vast difference between humans and the creator of all. And in between that are other beings. So you have creator gods, gods, and then you have demigods. Then you have humans. And humans don't have anywhere near the power that a demigod would have. 
So what's the demigod? The demigod would be like Superman or Thor or General Zod. These are what the demigods look like. They have more sense of their power than what we know even exists. Then you have a full-on God that is able to create a library of information with a single thought. They think in gigabyte bandwidths. If they look at you and you summon them and they look at you and they say, well, he doesn't have a, he doesn't have an altar. He doesn't have words of power. He doesn't have a cosmic beacon. He doesn't even know that divine parents exist. I see six of his divine parents and he doesn't even know who they are. Conversation's going to end because if they realize that they were to contact you, they destroy you. So it's not even worth their time. You're having a connection to them. They have to see that you have some things in your consciousness that they can connect to before you're able to even have any kind of relation with them or else it could be harmful to you. So the gods are here as a break front for the creator. A lot of people say, well, I speak to God and God told me this. That's not true. The creator doesn't get involved with grains of sand. That's why he created the gods as a intermediary because the human mind is not able to understand or fathom the existence of the creator of all. We wouldn't even be able to say the creator's name. So gods exist as a way to evolve beyond that point and somehow get a connection to that that we call the creator. And that's not a very popular school of thought, but it's still real. Are errors made? Every day. By by these, uh, you know, these spiritual beings? Yes. yes. They so, make mistakes too. Okay. They've made some mistakes on this planet. All right. So in I, I've seen, uh, I looked at uh, this, this cord cutting ceremony. Uh, I believe it's where you have this. That the off-world dagger. Yeah. Is it meteorite, you said? No, it's an off-world dagger. It's not. Off-world dagger. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're holding it over this woman and she's, she's uh, convulsing. You know, she's shaking and she's in this zone. Uh, what kind of preparation did, did she go through leading up to that point to get to that place to, and what, what is it that she's experiencing? Well, to answer the first part of the question, she got on a plane, she came to the seminar, no preconceived notion. She didn't know that that was going to happen. She just waited on the line like everybody else. And she presented herself before me in the moment that that came in contact. That was it. It's, it's an object that is not from this world. So the moment that for certain people, when it hits your auric field, she was experiencing a sensory overload. So her senses don't know where to put that information. As a result, she seemed a little spasmodic. Um, it's funny because her husband came literally to this seminar and he had an even worse reaction, a seemingly worse reaction than what she had. And he yelled out and cried and wailed and he was prostrated for about four minutes. We had, to, we had a whole row of people that we ushered and they had to sit to the side and collect themselves. So when your body comes into contact, or it's really your auric field, so your auric field extends this far outside of your body and it's your energetic shield. When that divine instrument comes into contact, everybody reacts differently. There were some people that felt like they, and you know, you could see people struggling to hold it together. They were shaking, but they didn't want to 
be embarrassed. You know, and I told people, don't restrict whatever you feel, express it. And some people just didn't want to do that. So we ushered them to the side and some people cried for a week. And that's what happens. Are, are you able to do this type of uh, ceremony without that that tool? I could. Yeah? I could. Because Ben was saying that uh, he locked his emotional keys in his house. And he, <laughs> and he was trying to find someone skillful enough to be able to open that door. Wow. Well, th- I wouldn't use divinity for something like that. So, you know. It actually might be a blessing in disguise that you lost those keys. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any, are, are you able to do any type of uh, like sort of demonstration of some sort um, in some form? A demonstration? I don't know. Like, like, I don't do like demonstrations, a, no. no. I mean, you know, the things that I do, I don't, it's not like, hey, I could do something that's all ego. And okay. the only thing that I do is when I have a seminar, people come to the seminar, um, people see for themselves. They feel the energy in the room and they can see all kinds of things happening. But in terms of um, doing demonstrations for people, you know, I'll answer people's questions, but I don't have a calling or the need to, you know, prove to people by creating a ball of fire out of nowhere or something like that. You know, it's... Uh, that's something that a, a neophyte would do. Okay. But for some of the people that are listening to this and maybe hoping that we were talking about graffiti, you know, <laughs> they might be, they might have just listened to the past hour and a half or whatever it's been and be like, okay, well, some of that makes sense. But then what? What do I do? What do wh- how could I even look into this further or experience this in some form? What, 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 what's their next step? And, I think uh, that's a- I would like to uh, add on to that, you know, going back to potentiality of like the human. Um, I know a lot of young, you know, people like myself, the younger generation gets a bad rap, you know, we're coddled and protected and, you know, we're spoiled and all that. And to some extent, I agree with that. That's true. But um, I feel, also feel like our generation has been uh, thrown right at the beginning of Pandora's box opening with all the technology, the internet, you know, it can get really dark with all this kind of stuff. So what kind of advice could you give to a a younger audience to protect themselves creatively, spiritually from all the distractions or so-called demons out there that can like, you know, move us from our path? Well, if if I had to give some advice to, you know, what what you suppose is it's I believe it's important to have a very clear intention. And if you're in, you know, I, I hear a lot of people that say, well, you know what, I, I shut down my Facebook page because, you know, I didn't like what I was doing. And I've, I've never done that since I've had Facebook or Instagram. I've never had to shut down my page because I didn't have the discipline not to look at some of the things that are being presented So one of the things that is important is for people to have an intention on why are you there? Why are you a rapper? Why are you an artist? What is your intention of being an artist? Is it because you want to be rich and famous? Is it because you need to express the creativity that's inside of you? I think it begins with the intention of why you're doing what you're doing. And then in terms of being protected, you know, again, discernment is important, you know, 
I, uh, there's a friend of mine that says, she's a beautiful woman. She lives in Brooklyn. She says, oh, I just took a walk and I'm like, it's three in the morning. Like, why would you put yourself out there? You're a beautiful woman in Brooklyn, which is huge, but you're walking around at three o'clock in the morning. That doesn't look right. It looks like you're a lady of the night and you're going to open yourself up to any kinds of situations. So do what you need to do before 10 o'clock, get it done. And don't put yourself in the kind of situation that could bring about a result that you don't want. I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, no, it's well, with with all the can you can you reach a deeper understanding of the universe and still have a dependency, uh, if not an addiction, to some of the things that we go to for entertainment. Everyone here carries around a telephone in their pocket, and and we you know, habitually pick that thing up time and time again. And I, I know that, of course, with traveling, there are moments where your cell phone is not working the way it typically does, and you find yourself going to it or, or, or craving it the, the way someone would crave a cigarette, that, that, that type of satisfaction, or, or go to it for, you know, tasks or needs that, you know, you were doing before you had a cell phone. You know, I, I, I believe that, you know, the, these devices that they're, they're designed uh, to, to influence us in, in a way that, that is very distracting. So I'm, I'm wondering if these, having these things in your life interferes at all with existing, you know, if you were going to take a walk in the park, you know, how do you absorb that if every minute you're you're staring down at you know an, a, a screen you know how, how do you experience life when you're constantly going to you know uh, some form of technology well i think i think the better question is is can <coughs> this type of technology be used utilized because it is such an integral part of our lives especially younger generation like like ben um can it be utilized and can it be used to put people on a positive path? Or is it something that is kind of thrown at us as a distraction from the path? I, I think that, you know, technology is important. And right now on the planet, I think that our technology has usurped our spirituality. It's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be on par with both. So technology is supposed to, is to make the or make more available the spirituality. But unfortunately, you know, uh, people have taken the technology over the spirituality. And to answer the question, of course, it can, I believe that people should have a healthy detachment away from technology. People should measure their spirituality and measure their technology. And they most likely will find that their technology is at 90% and their spirituality, if at all, might register at 10% or less than that. You wanna bring that up and how do you do that? There needs to be time where you, you know, most people don't set a certain amount of time every day to being at the altar, even if they have one. Most people don't say, you know what? One day a week, I'm gonna just not have my phone or be on a computer at all. I'm gonna do this on a Thursday when Thursday is aligned with the energy of Jupiter. So I'm going to take from 12 a.m. Thursday to 12 a.m. on Friday 
and I'm not going to deal with any electronics. I'm going to make sure that I spend a little more time in front of the water and connect with the elements. I'm going to take a different route to work for one week. I'm going to just drive the speed limit for two days. Do things to challenge yourself, and the challenges that you put yourself through are disciplinary. Discipline is, and this is why I really am grateful for the years that I spent as a Muslim, because we had to pray four or five times a day, no matter what. So during a certain window, if I was on the train and it was time to make prayer, I would get off the train, walk to the back of the platform, take out my, you know, make ghusl, and there's a certain way that we wash, put out my prayer rug, and I would make my prayers and, you know, have to block everybody out. So discipline is a key factor in, you know, reaching another plateau in what you're able to do. You know, you have a certain level of artistry where I'm sure you could have been partying and hanging out, but you were working on your craft and other people were partying. You were finding new ways to use the modalities and the mediums that you use. And it's gotten you to a point where the moment somebody sees your artwork on Instagram, they're like, wait a minute. This dude is, you know, the numbers you have are not fake, right? You have you have a hundred and how many followers do you have on Instagram? I'm just making a huh? point. Uh, uh, Listen, huh? <laughs> <laughs> huh? I thought you did talk about like writing numbers in my artwork. No, no. Uh, at 137 or 138. Okay. So you have 130-some-odd thousand people who see the the specification and the time that you put into developing the craft of the spiritual way that you use art. And it's something that's energetic. When people look at it, they're just like, okay, this dude spent a lot of time in creating this and presenting this. And it's something that people respect. So it's really no different from when someone, you know, spends a lot of time in making sure that they give a polished presentation of who they are as a spiritual being or what they can do on the microphone as a singer. You're going to hear the tonality of the sacrifice that they put into what they do. And I'll make this applicable to anyone that's listening. It does pay off in the end. So the time and the instruction that I put into developing a rapport with the spiritual world, eventually it pays off. For a long time, it didn't seem like anything was happening. You know, I was making offerings at the altar and I was burning ancestor money and I was lighting the candles and doing my prayers. And it just, I made it a part of who I am, but eventually certain things started to happen. And I found that I wasn't struggling with money anymore. Money is a joke to me. Money is like, I have checks that are sitting in my house. It's too much of a bother to take a picture of it and put it in the bank. So they just sit there. Um, there are inventions that I have that are sitting in my head that I could bring to people, but I just haven't created the time to flesh that out. So there are certain things that after a while, the spirituality has brought you beyond the threshold of what you used to struggle with to the point where now when you look back, you can see how far you've come. And I say this like Cardi B. <laughs> who's, who's that? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, who's Cardi B? I said the same thing a couple of months. Like, who's Cardi B? Cardi B is somebody, shout out to Cardi B if you're listening, but um, <laughs> Cardi B is, is a girl from 
the Bronx, and I think she's from the islands. She's like Trini or something like that, or um, Dominican. She was a stripper. You know who Cardi B is, right, Ryan? Wait, is she, from, she live in Florida? No. No, you must have seen her like Instagram pop up or something like that. Oh, she 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 dances in a strip club. She used to, right? She was a stripper. okay. She yeah, would make yeah, really yeah. kind of like she's straight up a girl from the Bronx. Yeah, she's, like would make these like would make these intriguing really... videos that are sexual or yeah. Funny. But she would also like, make videos that were kind of like that were pretty funny. Just yeah. her being herself, just like kind of wiling out. Yeah, she she's very uh very salacious and really blunt. Yeah, very raw, blunt. Yeah, right. For sure. So everything women wish they could do in terms of like how we objectify women, she does that now. Women are like, I'll do this for the D and all of that stuff. She's kind of like and the new, like, uh, little Kim maybe. Yeah, but or Nicki Minaj. Nicki Minaj, Nicki Minaj did a song with her because I think she realized, like, I need to, because Cardi B is what these new chicks are aspiring right, to Right, sure. Yeah. Wait, does she do music too? Or not? Yes. Just because you recorded doesn't make you music, but okay. Right. Uh, no disrespect, Cardi B, but all right, so... Um, here's my point, right? She's someone that was a stripper. No equivocation about doing that. And is she the most beautiful woman in the world? No. Does she have the most bangingest body in the world? No. But she believed in her talent. So she said that she took $60,000 while she was still on the pole and she invested it in herself. She wanted to, you know, make a record and that whole thing fell apart. But the energy of her willingness to do that is what made her who she is now. Now she can make 60 grand just by doing one 10-minute set. And she's worth millions of dollars quickly. But she put the the she plugged in her willingness to do that into the universe. And that energy was not wasted. It didn't happen in the way she thought it would. And this is what I'm saying to anybody who's listening. It pays to invest in yourself spiritually at least, because that's where all the power is coming from. Whether you believe it or not, everything that you do here is being fueled by the spiritual aspect of what you're doing in the spiritual world and you bring it into the physicality and that's what people are responding to. And there are a lot of other people that don't give their spirituality any acknowledgement and their lives are good, but how much better would it could it, should it be, if they were to spend a little bit of time of exploring it? So, you know. So, so what would someone do from you know listen listening to this that wanted to go on a more spiritual path? What, what? It's very simple. What do I'll, they I'll do? Tell you. I would say, and it's very simple. Go to YouTube. Go to galacticus.com on YouTube and just begin to watch the videos. Scroll down. We have over 100 some odd videos on our YouTube page. Subscribe to the channel. Look at the topics and see what resonates with you. Look at the thumbnail of how the video is presented and see if it sparks your interest. Look at the video. By virtue of you looking at the video and hearing what I'm speaking about, that's going to lead you to the next thing. Eventually, maybe you'll come to a seminar. Maybe you'll go to the website and read about something. We have blogs. We have lots of useful things that will reward your thirst for spirituality. 
And I'm promoting what I do because I've spent a lot of time searching as well. What is going to be, where am I going to go next? Who is it that's going to take me from where I am to as far as I want to go? And I said, you know what? I would like to become that person. And my willingness to do that is what has brought all of these different things about. So I would say, start educating yourself. The videos are anywhere from five minutes to 10 minutes long. Do something every day that will feed the soul part of you, whatever that is, whether it's doing a good deed or edifying yourself spiritually or creating an altar and making offerings to your ancestors. That's a major source of bringing blessings and all kinds of things into your life. Or you can just sit and meditate at least for 20 minutes every day. And the clarity of you doing that for a certain amount of time, it will begin to guide your life in a more orchestrated way because you become a, you will become a magnet for the events in your life that your soul brought your body into being to experience. Well said. Cool. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, uh, you heard it here. Uh, if you want to find out more about uh, Sri Master Gano Grills, uh, please head over to... Uh, Galacticus. Galacticus. I, I'm that's... just, I'm a little, I'm a little high, so. Yo, <laughs> he's high on life. Oh. A little, little www.galacticus.com. Or you can also check Gano out on, uh, on Facebook, Instagram. Right. We're on Instagram. We have a Galacticus page on Instagram. We have a Galacticus page on YouTube. Twitter. We're not that good on Twitter because I never really got the whole Twitter thing. I thought Twitter was dead, man. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> they really play it up like, in the media. Really? I, I think yeah. I think they must have like a hand in the financial state yeah, of it. Do. A lot of like CNN, do. they always hyping up Twitter, and I was like, yeah. damn, this, I thought this shit was dead. I, I thought the, I thought Instagram killed it. The news yeah. uses Twitter as like a. Uh, yeah, it's a like a reference. Now. It's a quoting yeah. source. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump uses Twitter. So, I mean, you know, that's yeah. going to keep it alive for the next three years at least. Yeah, he got those Twitter fingers. So, <laughs> a quick, um, quick, quick question. Mm-hmm. What about rep- reptilian people? What about them? Do they exist? Yes, they do. Damn, this just mad, <laughs> mad motherfuckers all interfering with human beings, right? Um, well, I wouldn't say that they're interfering, you know, but they, reptilians have a right to live just like humans do. And, you know, chickens may, may think that you're interfering with their life, but you eat them all the time. Can you have a, ch- <laughs> can you have a child with a reptilian? Uh, like a download reptilian? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the people in the industry that, you know, ship shape or shape shift in and out of reptilian form. And some of the newscasters that you, if you look on YouTube and see that they're shape shifting, they have, uh, somehow someone is mated with a reptilian in their family and it's a real thing. Justin Bieber's a shapeshifter. There's oh, yeah. Some videos of him and his eyes. You, you can, can see, see. it. You okay. can see it. I've seen some videos, like not of Justin Bieber, but I've seen yeah. some others. I've seen one yeah. of uh, Melania Trump. Oh, yeah. Where, where, she, where, where, she, uh, where she's uh, you see, like, ship shaping. Morphing. Yeah, they show it's her a real face. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wait, didn't they say that Ellen DeGeneres and Justin Bieber are the same person? That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. When one is in the public, the other it. one can't be accounted for. Is yeah, that what right? it is? I don't know, bro. She might have a doppelganger of herself. Yeah. But I don't see that. Well, you know, I, I, I definitely absorbed a lot. There's a lot, a lot of information yeah. in what you said. And I, it's, it's like being on a highway, man. Yeah. So there's a, lot, there's a lot more questions to ask. But 
I think uh, at the end of the day, we just have to, you know, go online, galacticus.com. Yes, sir. You know, and uh, thank you, you very much. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, we also have a Galacticus app. And, you know, hope to see you guys at some upcoming. I don't know when this is going to air. Well, when is your next one? The next seminar is going to be January the 14th in Los Angeles. And it's called the Sequence of Power Seminar. And we have some more lined up after that. But the best way is just to go to the website and look at the events page. And that'll keep you coming. Awesome. All right. Sounds all good. All right. Cool. All right. From all of us here, peace out. Peace. Thank you. You're, all right. There you go.